when we think about what Jesus has done for us, I mean, I tell you, if that gets old, we got something wrong with us because it is beyond anything we could possibly even grasp or imagine about how good that is um, and, and for what he has done for us. Um, guys, tonight we're going to be back in the Gospel of Matthew, um, continuing on in our, in our series through um, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in verses 21 through 30 here this evening, and we will get into that here in just a few moments. So um, the longer you live, I think the more you realize that the, the world has plenty of problems in it, doesn't it? Um, you know, you think about life and just the things that just kind of break down all over the place, whether it's society or whether it's electronics or whether it's cars or as you get older, whether it's our bodies, right? Um, and because of this, a problem-solving um, thing is something that is really important when it comes to life's issues. And when it comes to problem-solving, the best way to solve a problem is to get to the root cause of the problem. For instance, if somebody has a car issue and you take it to a mechanic, right, to get fixed, you don't take it to the mechanic just for him to look at it and put his little doohickey on it and erase the check engine light and send you on his way. You send you on your way. That's not why you go to a mechanic, right? You send a car to a mechanic so they can find the root cause of the problem that's causing the check engine light to come on and actually fix it and send you on your way, right? Now, if somebody has health issues, they see a doctor for the same purpose. We see doctors so that they can get to the root cause of the problems that we are having with our health and to take care of what's actually causing um, the, the symptoms. And a good doctor will not just give you a pill to mask the issue. He will try to find the actual root cause of the problem so we can be fixed at its source, right? And I kind of liken it to this. If a patient is losing blood and the only thing the hospital does is gives them more blood and sends them home so they can just lose it again, they really haven't accomplished anything unless they find the source of the problem and actually fix um, what's going on, right? And when it comes to the problems that we face in life, and they are many, um, finding the root of these problems is vital if they are going to be fixed. And this is true um, with health problems. This is true with car problems. This is true with work problems, people problems, marriage problems, and so on. Um, we can't mask things. We actually need to fix what is actually going on. And this is very true when it comes to, honestly, the biggest problem in this world and in the, the biggest problem that we have in life, which is our sin problem. And this is something, as we'll see today, is, is, is rooted in the very inner parts of our being. It's a heart problem that we have when sin comes out. When I say that, I'm not talking about the, the beating flesh that's inside of our chest. I'm talking about our inner being, our inner man, our, the deepest part of, of who we are as people. Our sin problem begins here. And this is kind of the, the focus of what we're going to be talking about here tonight as we go on and, and get into um, the, the teaching from Jesus. So let's go ahead and read our, our verses here. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. We'll read through verse 30. And it says this, You've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, 
Leave your sacrifice there at the altar and go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you paid the last penny. In verse 27, he says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, we thank you so much just for your word and for uh, the encouragement, the, the instruction, Lord, the challenge that comes from it. We need it, Lord. It's through your Bible, through this book, Father, that we can see um, how it is that we're supposed to live, the things that you want from us in our lives. Um, And God, tonight I just pray that you would move in hearts and lives. Um, It's a a tough teaching tonight, Lord God, but I just pray, Heavenly Father, that that God, you would just reveal um, anything in us, Lord God, that, uh, that, that is not right with you and help us to get that right, Lord. Father, we know tonight that, that true change doesn't come through the voice of any man. It, it comes through your spirit working upon the hearts of man. So, Father, tonight I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak tonight. Um, just use me, use my lips as, as your tool to speak to your people. Father, I just pray that we would all just submit ourselves to you during this time, God, and I just pray that you would remove any distractions and, and that you would just reign in our hearts and reign in this service and reign in this time, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. So some passages of Scripture, I will tell you, that aren't as quite as easy to preach as others, and this just happens to be one of them, because it's, it's a difficult passage to preach, but it's nonetheless um, any less important than any of the other passages of Scripture. In fact, as we'll see tonight, it's, it, what, that what this is really about is so vital that we understand um, as people. Um, as I said, this is part of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and over the next number of weeks we're going to be finishing um, what we're going over the next few chapters, and really what this is was a, a sermon, a, a teaching that Jesus gave in which he um, went over a number of different things, a number of different topics with his primarily Jewish audience. Now last week we saw um, in, in this sermon that, that Jesus really began to talk about the law of God. Now the law of God um, was basically detailed instructions for his people, Israel, um, in how they were to conduct themselves, from their moral lives to their worship to their human relationships down to their government and pretty much everything in between, um, the, the law of Moses, what we think of as the law, was given to the nation of Israel to really help them see how God wanted them to live their lives. Um, and as Jesus said last week, as we saw, um, the laws were important. Um, the laws aren't going away. They were laws that had heavenly blessings attached to those who did them and obeyed them and taught them right and and consequences for those that didn't. However, as we discussed last week, we saw that um, God had an important purpose behind the law that went beyond the do's and don'ts. They, and many of them, we'll see even tonight, tonight that um, they really focused just on the do's and don'ts and, and really lost sight of the heart of the, the, what was really behind the law and God's real purpose in it. 
And, and um, one of those purposes was for God to reveal himself. You think about the, the law and, and all the prophets and really the whole Old Testament, it, it really gives a, a picture of who God is. It, it shows his people his character, it shows them his nature, his holiness, his righteousness, that he's a God of justice, a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, and so on. And we see all of these things kind of depicted in that Old Testament law and those prophets. However, um, a real reason that the Lord gave this beyond that was to help the people see um, that they couldn't obey the law in its completion. Um, In in fact, the law was given in part to reveal their sinfulness, to reveal the fact that they needed somebody else to help them. They needed a Savior because they themselves could not do that. See, the thing with the law of God is that although the law gave instruction for people's lives, the problem with it is it didn't give them any power to obey it. And the New Testament talks about this in some some of Paul's letters. That there, that there was no power in them to actually be able to fulfill these things and actually follow them and obey them. And the bigger problem um, was that the law revealed people's sin, but it gave them no way to truly be forgiven. That there was no way through the law to make them right truly with God. Because the book of Hebrews says the blood of animals could never take away somebody's sin. And as we saw in verse 20 last week, this is something that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had overlooked completely. Um, they had thought by their strict adherence to these laws and commandments that um, they would be in heaven for sure, but as Jesus said, um, they were clearly mistaken. And the reason for this, as we'll see in today's verses, is that they, they not only didn't recognize the true source of their problem, which was sin, which was the fact that their hearts were far away from God, and, and the real truth was they really didn't even understand the depths of the commands themselves. Now, throughout chapter 5, um, the rest of chapter 5, we're not going to get to it all tonight. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through it here. But you're going to see each section begin with, you have heard, and then Jesus will say, but I tell you. Now, you have heard refers to, um, think about the audience that Jesus was speaking to, right? We're talking about a bunch of Jewish people under the law, under the teachings of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, um, the, the, the religious folks, right? I mean, they, they, they sat under their teaching. And so all these folks Jesus is teaching, is teaching right now, they've been sitting under the instruction of these Jewish religious leaders of the day. So when Jesus says, you have heard, he's talking about the instruction that they had been receiving from the religious leaders. However, when he says, but I tell you, Jesus is saying, let me tell you what it actually means. Here's what God said, here's what they've been teaching you, but let me tell you the root of what God really meant by these commands. And all the way through the rest of chapter 5, we're going to see that. Now, tonight, we're going to be looking at the two passages we're going to be looking at. These two commands are two of the Old Testament um, Ten Commandments, of the Ten Commandments, right? So there's Ten Commandments. This is actually number six and number seven, don't murder and don't commit adultery. Um, As we look at this first one here, he says this in verse 21, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Now, contrary to popular belief these days, one of the Ten Commandments is not do not kill. It, it's do not murder. 
is the actual literal translation of that, of that commandment, right? Because there's a, there's, a, there's a huge difference between somebody being killed and somebody being murdered. Uh, the, the, the one here is talking about a premeditated act of evil. It's not talking about accidental death. You know, you get in a car accident and somebody dies. That is not what this commandment is talking about. It's talking about a malicious act of evil from one person to another, specifically against a human being. Somebody made in God's image. So um, regardless of what Peter says, when we're out there shooting Bambi, it's not murder, right? Um, we're talking about people killing people. It's kind of the idea of this Old Testament command. And it says here that what they had been taught was if you commit murder, judgment was going to come. Now, sure, there was an aspect of this that was talking about the, the, the local um, officials, right? Now, the, the Jews, although they were underneath Roman law, they were given freedom to conduct um, a lot of the matters on their own. And they had what was called the Sanhedrin, which was a really a religious court of these, of these religious um, teachers and, and Pharisees and Sadducees. And they made up this court that would kind of deal with all of the um, big issues in the nation of Israel. And so there, there's an aspect of this that, yes, somebody that murdered somebody would have been brought before that court. But remember, we're talking about the command of God. We're talking about the command of, that came from the mouth of God by the finger of God on tablets. And so we're talking about a judgment far deeper than just some human court. We're talking about the judgment of God. And even the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they would have agreed with this as somebody that commits murder will stand before God in judgment for that some day. But now, look what Jesus says. So you've heard this, you've been taught this by these teachers, but then he says, but I say. Now I just want to just talk for just a second how big of a deal that statement is. I mean, do you realize what he is saying? Jesus is claiming to speak for God. It's a big deal when we think about a first century Jewish audience. However, what do we know about Jesus? He wasn't just claiming to speak for God. He was God. What's John chapter 1 and verse 1 say? I mean, the, 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 um, the apostle John, he, he describes Jesus very specifically as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And so Jesus in the, in the, in the Gospels is described as the Word. What do we call this thing? The Word of God, God's Word, right? And so Jesus is taking an authoritative um, posture here and saying, look, here's what you heard, but understand when that commandment was given, guess who gave it? Jesus himself gave it all that time ago. You know, and we think about Jesus um, in, in, in the Old Testament, right? I mean, we say, well, Jesus didn't get there to the New Testament. There's all kinds of imagery of any time really you see um, the hand of God move. Um, Moses, when he was up on Mount Sinai, seeing the finger of God writing these things. Jesus, we talked about this last week, is the physical image of the invisible God. And so anytime we see the, these pictures in the Old Testament, it is the Son of God moving and interacting with the people on earth. And so Jesus was... Probably the one on the Mount Sinai that was the one speaking to Moses. He's the one whose voice thundered to the nation of Israel. This guy that was standing there in front of this mountainside of people was there 1,500 years before this in front of Moses when the law of God was actually given. And so he says, let me tell you what I actually meant when I said, do not murder. Gives a little bit of depth to that statement, doesn't it? Pretty cool. So he says, you've heard do not murder, but, but he says this, but I say, even if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Hmm. 
So they said murder. Jesus says anger. Well, where's anger? What's anger? Where, where does it start? It starts right here, doesn't it? it? It's just an inward stewing of, of just, I'm not happy about something. I'm mad, right? It's just that it's, it is towards something or someone. And Jesus said, if you're angry, you've sinned. And guess what? That sin's going to get you judged as well. But then he goes on and, and he says, I, I, love, I love the way this, the, our, our New English translations um, translate this. If you call somebody an idiot, we're not supposed to be able to say that in church, but that's the way it's translated here, right? If you call somebody an idiot, you're, he says you're, you're in danger of being brought before the court. Many of the older translations will say this word raka. If you say raka to somebody, which essentially means that it's a, it's a term of hatred sort of, towards somebody, like I, like I hate you, I despise you, you're, you're yelling at them, calling them names. It's this idea um, that it's, it's, it's anger manifest and somebody's outgoing from their mouth, right? It's, it's beyond anger. I'm mad, but now I'm taking that anger and I'm directing it towards somebody physically with my mouth shouting some type of a name towards somebody. So that the sin has escalated and he says... For this, you're going to be bought before the, the courts, the courts of heaven. And then he says, if you curse someone, you're in danger even of the fires of hell. This means to, to will, like wishing ill will towards somebody, wishing destruction on somebody. It's just it's this idea that you look at somebody and you're so enraged and anger that I just want them dead. You, you get that just... <clears throat> You're just infuriated to the point that you just wish that a car would run them over. It's kind of the idea here. And he says, with that mindset, you're in danger of the fire of hell. The point is this, the religious leaders taught that murder was wrong, but justified basically anything else as acceptable as long as they didn't get to that final step of murder. But Jesus says... Murder might be the end result, but sin started when anger arose inside of you toward a person. Now let's jump over to the other example he gives over in verse 27. He says, you've heard it said, right, from these teachers, you must not commit adultery. Well, what's adultery, right? I mean, simply put, it's defined as marital unfaithfulness. When a husband or a wife goes outside of their spouse to do what they do, right? For marital unfaithfulness. Now, the religious leaders taught that this, again, was defined by the final act, right? Marital unfaithfulness was somebody actually performing the physical act of sex outside of marriage with somebody else. Which is true. However, what's Jesus say? But I say to you, even... If you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Again, Jesus is saying adultery isn't just an outward action. Like murder, it, it begins here. The point in, in layman's terms of what Jesus is saying is this. There's a big difference between looking at a man or looking at a woman and saying, wow, they're beautiful. Well, they're, they're handsome, right? I mean, I, I think that's, uh, my, my wife and I will sit down and watch a movie together and be like, man, that person is just beautiful, you know? And there's, there's nothing meant by that, you know? It, it's just like, wow, there's, I mean, beautiful person, beautiful eyes, whatever, right? But there, there's a difference between that and looking and going, oh, <laughs> that's nice, 
I mean, you get it, right? But, but it goes beyond there because he, lust is beyond that. And, and so it stems from taking that second look to, to wondering what... I wonder what they look like with all, all that stuff on. To fantasies about what it would be like to be with that person. And in their minds, they, 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 deli- they, they, they conjure up this whole scene. And Jesus says, look, I don't care if you touch somebody else. The very fact that that's going on in your mind, you've already committed adultery. You've already sinned. Again, deserving judgment. Now, we're going to get into the rest of this in a minute, but just from this, there's some major, major application points that we need to look at. One is this, is sin is something that is very progressive in nature. You think about sin, it's, it's something that starts off small, and if it's not taken care of, it leads to more sin, and not just more sin, generally speaking, it leads to more severe Sin. And we see this example here with something from, from anger to, to lashing out and calling somebody a name to really desiring their death to the point that you carry out the act and murder them, right? It's, a, it's, prog- it's not just progression of sin. It's not just more sin. It gets more severe with every single step. The same thing with the second example. You see a pretty gal or a pretty guy. You start undressing him with your mind, fantasizing about it. Next thing you know, adultery happens. It's, it's progressive, but it gets worse as it goes, See, murder just doesn't happen, generally speaking. It's a series of decisions that lead up to murder. Adultery doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up someday and jump into the sack with somebody. I mean, it's a series of compromises in your life that led you to this point that you made that decision, right? And, and so sin is progressive in nature, there's a reason there's verses like Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 where the Apostle Paul tells us to, to get rid of all bitterness, to get rid of rage and anger and harsh words and slander. Sounds familiar to what Jesus said, right? As well as all types of evil behavior. Why? Because the Apostle Paul knew that if we allow those things in our life, they will fester into more sin, and not just more sin, worse sin, to the point will bring us to this spot where we, of, of no return. Well, what's the book of James say? It says sin begins as a desire, but as it progresses, it ends in death. It's a big, big deal. Sin's progressive. You know, we, there's this example in the Old Testament, way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 4. Um, Adam and Eve have these two sons, Cain and Abel. And there's this picture of Cain and Abel bringing their, their offerings to the Lord. And, and Cain was a farmer, so he brought his produce to God and, and the, the, to this altar to the Lord. And, and, and Abel was, it was, a sh- was a shepherd, right? And so he brought a, he brought a lamb to the Lord um, to, to offer him as a sacrifice, right? And, and, and as they got there, it says that, that God didn't accept Cain's offering, but he accepted Abel's offering. And this absolutely disinferiated Cain. had really nothing to do with the offering itself. It had to do with their hearts, right? And then this is what God told Cain. He, he asked him, why are you angry? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what's right, but if you refuse to do what's right, he says, then watch out because sin is crouching at the door and it is eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. He says, aka, I mean, aka, right? If you don't get your heart in order, Cain, the results are going to be catastrophic, 
And it's just interesting the way the Lord put that. It says, sin's at the door that wants to control you. And as we give in to sin, as we don't take care of sin, it progresses to a point that it absolutely will just envelop us to where we can't escape it. It's dangerous. Um, the late preacher Ravi Zacharias once said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and will cost you more than you want to pay. So true. Another application, I think, from what we've read so far is that all sin, not just the big ones, all sin is going to be punished someday. Right? I mean, and when I say every sin, sin, I mean every sin from the person stealing a sucker off the store shelf to the person that commits grand theft auto. From accidentally saying a bad word when you smack your toe against the, the, the end table to cussing somebody out, guess what? Both will be judged someday before the Lord. From telling a white lie to a politician that can't tell the truth, right? I shouldn't say it, whatever. But, you know, it's all going to be judged someday. Every single one. Now, here's an important little caveat, right? Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that being angry with somebody is the exact same as committing murder. That's not what he's saying. He, he's not saying that, that, that having a fantasy is the exact same as committing adultery, but what he is, is saying is that all sin comes with a price. He is saying that all sin will be judged one day, and what I also believe he is saying is that sin comes with varying degrees of punishment. And, you know, and there's a number of verses I'm going to quote here in just a second, but one thing that's clear in Scripture is that there is varying degrees of rewards for the faithful. And Scripture also seems to say there's varying degrees of punishment for those who don't know the Lord and are unfaithful. Listen to what Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36 says. It says, we will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word we have spoken. Even the words we say. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, will come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. And this is all going to consummate someday in what's known as this great white throne judgment. And we see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, where it says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in those books. The sea gave up its dead, the death gave and the grave gave up their dead and all were judged according to their deeds. So there's an aspect that all sin is going to be judged from the very thoughts that go through our mind to the words that we say to the deeds that are done. They're all getting jotted down in a book in heaven. Can I tell you something? There is nothing that we do in secret. God sees what's here. He sees what's here. He hears what comes out of this. He sees what's done in this, our secret places and the secret of our house. He sees it all. And all of it is being documented. One by one by one by one. All worthy of judgment. But there are verses like Matthew 18 and verse 6 where, where Jesus is looking at these little children. And he says this, 
anyone who causes one of these little ones to, to stumble or to fall into sin, he says this, it would be better for them to tie a millstone around their neck and throw themselves into the depths of the sea than to hurt one of these little ones. And so again, we see that it's not that Jesus is saying that a white lie is the same as grand theft off. There's varying degrees of punishment. We're going to give an account for what we have done in detail. But the point is, is everything will be judged someday. Another point, and we're going to see this when we get down to verses 29 and verse 30. Look what he says down here. I mean, this is, you talk about some of the crazy things in the Bible. If your eye, even your good eye, cause you to sin, gouge that sucker out and throw it away. Why? He says, it's better for you to do that than for your whole body to be burnt in hell. If your hand caused you to sin, lop that sucker off. Throw it away. It's better for you to... I mean, that's pretty gruesome, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty gory to think about, but the question is, is what is Jesus really saying? Well, he, he's using a, a term called hyperbole, you know, which, which means he's, he's given an extreme example to teach a spiritual point, but he's not literally speaking about popping your eye out or, or cutting your hand off, right? He's just giving you an example. And, and, and the, the deeper point is this. Where does sin generally begin? We see something we want. We see something we desire. And Jesus said, look, if your eye is causing you to sin, get rid of the eye. Not literally, figuratively, right? And, and he moves on to this. Now, we, we talked about, right, from, from, we move from the heart to action, right? Whether it's Lust to adultery or anger to murder, we, we, we move from this to this. From pondering and thinking and, and all these things to actually physically doing. And it's just this picture imagery of really, he's talking about all sin. From the things we see to the things that we do and everything in between, he's talking about all sin. And his point is this, we need to go to extreme measures to do all that we can to keep temptation and sin out of our lives. That's the point, is what Jesus is trying to say right here. Anything that we can do, because of the danger of sin, because of its progressive nature and the fact that it leads to absolute destruction in our lives and the lives of people around us, he's saying here, do all that you can do, anything you can do, to keep sin away from you and out of your lives. So if it's the things that you're watching that are causing Lustful thoughts, quit watching them. If it's music that is giving you language problems or, or thoughts, quit listening to it. If it's the podcast or the news feed that you're listening to about politics that just infuriates you and angers you to the point that you want to shoot somebody, how about you turn it off? It's kind of the idea. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of being funny, but I'm really being serious. It's this idea, whatever it is in our life that is bringing us to the point that we're so infuriated or angry or lustful or get to the point where we want to steal or covet this or that or do whatever it is, he says, remove it. Get it out of your life. Go to extreme measures. Do anything you can do to remove that temptation because there's consequences for sin. 
This is why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.8, he says, Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The point is, instead of feeding yourself garbage, feed yourself this. Spend time with the Lord and the result will show itself. That's kind of the idea. Now, But now we're going to get really into the meat of what Jesus is talking about here. Our sinfulness far outweighs our righteousness. Our sinfulness far outweighs our moral character, our moral goodness. Now, think about what Jesus said last week in verse 20 about these Pharisees, these teachers of the law. I mean, just before, just before verse 20, he said, look, the people who do them and teach them, rewards in heaven. The people who... Don't do them and don't teach them. There may be some of them in heaven, but there's no rewards. But these Pharisees, these Pharisees and teachers of the law over here, they're not even going to heaven. What? They are the teachers of the law. They're the ones that, that did it better than anybody, right? So what is Jesus saying? Now again, I know I hit on this last week, but, but it's worthy of, of talking about it again because this is his point here as well. They set the bar too low. And this is what Jesus described. You think about this, right? The, the teachers of the law, these, these, these Pharisees, they were saying the command is do not murder. Right? Here's what they did. Here's the bar. Well, guess what? I ain't killed nobody. Therefore, I'm here. I'm good. You get it? Adultery, right? Well, I've never been unfaithful to my wife. Therefore, I set the bar here. You're good to go. As we're going to see here in a couple weeks, maybe after we get done with Easter, when we get into the whole marriage and divorce, one of the things that these, that these people were doing, they allowed for divorce, for divorce for really no good reason. That They would make up reasons to divorce their spouse so they could go get the one they wanted. And so they set the bar here. But what did Jesus say? He says, they say that they tell you this, but I say what? Even anger, even lust is worthy of judgment. What's Jesus saying? He's saying the bar's here. The, the bar's unattainable. The bar's, the bar's way up there. The, the reason the Pharisees couldn't, he, he told them, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you can't get to heaven. What's he saying? Jesus saying that the bar is perfection. The bar is the very righteous character of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, it talks about, not the New Testament, I mean, in the New Testament, I mean, it talks about, well, I think it's Apostle Paul talking to Romans. He says, when you, when you disobey one law, you've disobeyed them all. Even one sin. And the thing is, is how could anybody ever fix that? The problem with it is that they, they couldn't. They set the bar weight, and that's what happens still today. You know how many people I've heard say, well, they're in heaven because they were a good person. Well, define good. Were they perfect? Well, no, I mean, they weren't perfect. I mean, so many people have this, they do this exact same thing. Well, I ain't murdered nobody. Of course God's going to accept me. I mean, did anything real bad. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, but God's not good. They've missed the point. They, they have essentially brought the worst possible sin. They've, they've diminished the holiness of God so they can attain it. 
Well, guess what? It don't work that way. One sin, there is no amount of moral goodness that could ever possibly compensate for us committing one sin. Why? Because when we sin, we sin against an infinitely holy God. And it would take an infinity for us to pay for one sin. But you know what the big problem is? We got a whole lot more one. Don't we? Think about how many dumb things we do in the course of a lifetime. I mean, I probably got millions. I mean, he, his hand's probably sore for the things I got. He's got written down in my book. No amount of moral goodness could ever possibly outweigh our sinfulness. Now, let's look at verse 23 and 24 for a second. He says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice, remember, we're Jewish audience. We're talking about the temple where they would bring their sacrifices to go atone for their sin, Okay. He said, you bring your sacrifice to the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you. He says, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. What's his point? Sin affects worship. In fact, there's a point beyond this that sin inhibits us from being in God's presence. And, and he's, Jesus is saying here, like, look, the sacrifice means nothing if you haven't taken care of the sin. What's the goat going to do for you if your heart's not right? It's kind of the idea. And so he says, go take care of the problem first. Go take care of the sin. Make it right. And then you'll be ready to come and worship. Worship is defined as feelings of expression, of reverence, of adoration for God. It's to stand in awe of His attributes, to marvel and wonder at His glory and His grace. Worship is an overflow of a grateful heart. But how can anybody, if sin is present in their life and undealt with, be in a state where they can have even, even the ability to bring worship to God? They can't. It inhibits it. In fact, I'll go a step further. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 tells us this, that our sins have cut us off from God, and because of our sins, He has turned away and will not even listen anymore. Proverbs 28 and verse 9 says that God detests the prayers of a person who ignores His law. Here's the bigger deal. Now understand this from a Jewish mindset, Jewish culture, the, the clean and unclean laws, if a person, there was clean and unclean laws, right? I'm going to explain this real fast, that, that if a person was ceremonially unclean, they were considered um, unclean and could not come into the presence of God. And there were serious, serious consequences that they did. They, they were unwelcome because they were unclean, right? Again, the whole clean and unclean thing represents us in our sinful state, our sinful nature, unable to come into the presence of God. Okay, listen to what Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says. It says, we are all infected, with impure, infected and impure with sin, and when we display our righteous deeds, it says they are nothing but filthy rags. Now, let me give you the imagery and the context behind that statement. The filthy rags here, he's talking about bloody menstrual rags. I know that's graphic, but the law stated that a woman, during her week of menstruation, was considered ceremonially unclean and could not come into the temple to worship. And, and here's what the Bible says about the, righteousness, the righteous deeds of man. 
They're like a menstrual rag, and they are, they, there's nothing about them that makes us worthy to come into his presence. Like, the, the very best we can do, even our righteous deeds, apart from Christ, there is nothing good. That's why the Apostle Paul said in, in Philippians 2 there, he was talking about all the things that he did before Christ, and he says, I count them as dung. They're nothing but garbage. They mean nothing. And, and here's, the, here's the point, is the person that is separated from Christ and is not saved, they are not acceptable to come into the presence of God. Because they're people that are sinners, they're impure, they're, they're in a state of, of, of filthy uncleanliness, and they could not come into the presence of God on their own. Even one sin makes somebody unclean and unacceptable to the Lord. Well, how in the world, if one sin does it, how in the world do we get rid of all of the sins, right? Uh, another problem that we have is in our sinful state before Christ, guess what we do? We, we sin because that's who we are. When, when people think that I can come before God of my own goodness, before, when I don't need Jesus, I'm, I'm good enough to be accepted, oh boy, they've missed it. I mean, the, the Apostle Paul was one of the most self-righteous peoples, but I mean, one of the people that obeyed the law the most before Christ. But he, but he says, man, when, when, the, when, he, when, he, when he learned of the law, there was something in them that just wanted to break it, and he did. He, he went on to say, even after Christ, he's like, man, the, the things that I know I'm not supposed to do, those things that I do, and, and boy, those things that I, that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't even want to do those things. What in the world is wrong with me? Who's going who's gonna to rescue me from this body of... I mean, can I tell you something? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And I hope you understand that because there is a sin nature in every single one of us. If we talk about this this morning in men's breakfast, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that before Christ we were controlled by the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh is our sinful nature, that sinful man that's inside of us that craves sin. It, it, it feeds on evil and feeds on sin. And without Jesus, sin is what we do. We're by our very nature doing what our nature demands. And a person in that state is absolutely and completely without hope. And so what's the answer? Well, the answer is Jesus. And, and see, remember last week we talked about how Jesus fulfills the law? We, in our, in our greatest righteous state, like filthy rags, right? However, here's where Jesus comes in. Jesus came as a man, as human, right? Tempted in every way that we are. He came literally under the law. And he obeyed everything. Perfect. And I don't even mean just the, little, the low bar that they had set. He obeyed everything. He, he, he accomplished the high bar. In his life, he proved that he was God. Because he lived perfect without any sin whatsoever. And so he fulfilled the, 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 the letter of the law in his life. And when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for breaking the law through his death. Because the penalty of sin was death. And in doing so... He was able to pay the full debt of sin for everybody, for the world. He, he died. We're celebrating Easter he, a, couple, a couple weeks. Or he rose again. And the resurrection just, was just like an icing on the cake. It proved that he was who he was. God can't die. Jesus was God. Now, 
This is how salvation comes. Salvation comes not by the works of the law, not by our good deeds, not by us being better than the guy over there. It comes only by us recognizing that I can't do anything to get to heaven. I can't do anything to be good enough for God to accept me. Therefore, Jesus, I want what you did to count for me. Jesus, you went to die at a cross, you paid for my sin, and I want what you did to count for my life. Come into my life, forgive me of my sin, be my Savior, be my Lord, because I want to live for you. That's salvation, and when that moment happens, here's what transpires. His perfect life that he lived while he was here on earth, that met the standard of God, was accredited to our lives as individuals. I told you last week, it's the imputed righteousness of Christ, meaning it's accredited to our account, and now we as Christians stand holy and perfect and blameless before God Almighty. Now, not yet. Look at verse 25 and 26. He says this statement again, thinking about two people that are, haven't settled their differences, right? When you're on your way to the court with your adversary, he says, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will then hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Now, he's using a earthly image, right? He's talking about two people that have a grievance, he said, you're better off taking care of it between the two of you. Because the thing about the Sanhedrin court is it was ran by the religious leaders. The ones who followed, they believed they had to follow the law to the T to be accepted by God, right? And so if it got to that point, to the court, to the judges of the secular government there in Israel, guess what? If you're found guilty, if you know $99.99, you ain't getting out of jail until you pay $99.99. Not $99.98, You know, You get the picture, right? Spiritual image. Think about this. We owe an incredible debt to God because of our sin. We have an option to take care of it now. We, we can take care of it. If, if, if you haven't done this, you need to do this. You can take care of this. You can take care of your debt by turning to Jesus. By doing what we talked about, receiving him as your Lord and Savior. And so, think about the spiritual part of this, what Jesus is saying for, for, the, for the unbeliever, settle your debt now. Because if you don't settle your debt now, you're going to get handed over to the officer. You're going to stand before the heavenly court. You're going to stand before the judge, and you will pay to the very last penalty. But you know what the problem with that is? How long does it take? How long does it take to pay for sin against an infinite God. Do you ever wonder why hell's forever? Why when we, we say about it, there's a, people will spend eternity in a place called hell? Because our sin is against an infinite God, it will take an infinity to pay. It can't be. The point is take care of it now. He's given us the opportunity today, now, to take care of our heart before the Lord. And there's one last thing as we close. If we think about the law, Jesus was asked this 
by these teachers of the law. They asked him, they're trying to trick him, but they asked him, Teacher, of all the commandments in the law, which is the greatest? And what was Jesus' response? He said, To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? To love your neighbor as yourself. Can I tell you the, the heart of the law? It's about love. Now, I, I tell this message matters of the heart. The point Jesus is getting here is if we really want to obey the law of God, this has to change. This has to change. And the only way that happens is through Christ. Because here's what else happens when we get saved. When we get saved, we also get the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says that, that His very Spirit indwells us and begins to change us. See, when we get saved, a few weeks ago I talked about this war within us. When a person is a Christian, not only do they have the sinful nature inside of them still, unfortunately, but we also have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we have the option to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. And you know what the fruit of that is? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What else does it say? Against such there is no law. Remember, remember what we said last week? Jesus said the law is important. I mean, it is. It's not going away. It's still the standard of God. We still need to, we still need to obey the moral side of things because it shows us what's right and what's wrong. But the only way we do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we submit ourselves to Him in our lives, the natural outpouring of that is that we are loving towards God and we're loving towards people. We live a life of peace. Guess what we are? We're patient with people. We're kind to people. Moral goodness and character naturally flows out of our life. And when we're living like that, we fulfill the law ourselves in our actions. Not the same way Jesus did, but it's just against such there is no law. If we're living like that under the Spirit's control, we are following exactly the heart of the law that Jesus is talking about here in this passage. But it takes a heart change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for this time. Lord God, I just, I praise you for, just for who you are. God, so great, so loving and so kind. Heavenly Father, Lord, tonight we've been challenged. Um, and I, I just pray, God, that we would take it to heart. Father God, all of us have pro- struggles, all of us have problems, all of us sin. There ain't none of us better than the other, Lord God. We all need you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to see the seriousness of it and to to choose to live for you. For those of us in here that know you as Savior already, Lord God, let us choose to live with you in control of our lives, submitting ourselves daily to your leading. And, Father, if there be anybody in this place or anybody listening to this today, Lord God, that has ever made the decision, let them settle their account today. Because the fact is, God, as your word says, we, we have no idea when our last day comes. And so it needs to be settled now. And I pray that they would do that, Lord, by just simply calling out to Jesus and and receiving the salvation of their souls through him. God, we love you and we praise you, and we just thank you for all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. As we close tonight, we're going to